Good morning, Door Creek. It is good to be together in the new year and to say a big thank you for making Christmas extra special here at Door Creek. Maybe you were serving our children, baking some cookies. Uh, We had 10 services at our two campuses and for the first time in our history welcomed over 3,000 people to this place. So thanks for inviting friends, bringing family. It was a great celebration. And also for your generous giving towards the Advent Project. So to date, uh, almost 99,000 have come in. And so that's so encouraging for the work that'll be done in our backyard out at Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, as well as around the world, especially in Africa. And we remember that the Advent Projects are part of All In and the initiatives that that moved from February 13th through the end of next month. And all in, 29-7 is all about our vision, right? Our desire by God's grace to be a Christ-centered church for all people where the gospel is continually transforming lives, renewing our city, and changing the world. So it's an exciting time with seven weeks left in all in, a challenge to go here, but excited to see how God's going to provide. And it's been a great week at Door Creek. Think back a, a week ago today, we had 150 students up in Green Bay at a youth conference hearing about God, his word, his mission, aligning their hearts to that. This past week, we kicked off Upwards Basketball League, uh, a record 150 kids, boys and girls in that many, not from church families, an opportunity to use the game of hoops to point kids to Christ, their families. That's great. It's been a great week when you get a call from a kid who grew up in the church and he said, hey, Mark, can I talk to you? He's off to college. He says, man, I feel like God's stirring in my heart that I'm supposed to be a pastor. I want to talk to you about that. That's a great week. It's a great week to get an email from a friend new to this place in the last year. In his 70s, it says, I've never been to a church like this, and God has used this church, his words, to save my life. It's been a great week. A great week for us as a church to come around a family facing eviction and make sure that doesn't happen this month. That's a great week. And so thanks for being part of this place. And if you're new to this place, glad that you're here. Maybe you were part of those Christmas Eve services. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and we're going to kick off a new series today as we take a little five-week break from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick up this series. It's called Five. It has to do with objections to Christianity. So let's catch up with R.D., who's been talking to people downtown about some of these questions. R.D.? Do you think we can trust the Bible? I think that it's it's a divine book. So trying to like understand it with a human mind, it, it can get a little messy. So I know like a lot of people use the Bible to kind of promote their own agendas, like saying like preaching hate. Do you think the Bible is reliable and accurate in what it teaches and says about God? I guess it depends. Um, do I think the Bible is an okay method for certain normative values? Sometimes. Do I think it's a good historical or yeah. biological factor? No. So I don't know if you saw this week's Newsweek magazine. It's entitled The Bible, So Misunderstood. It's a sin. I thought, well, that was really nice in Newsweek to coordinate with our series here. <laughs> and uh, I really don't know Kirk Eichenwall, but I'm grateful for him helping us out here. Or does he help us out? Here's how he starts the article. 
They wave their Bibles at passers-by, screaming their condemnations of homosexuals. They fall on their knees, worshiping at the base of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments while demanding prayer in school. They appeal to God to save America from their political opponents, mostly Democrats. They gather in football stadiums by the thousands to pray for the country's salvation. They are God's frauds, cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they heed with less care than they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. They are joined by religious rationalizers, fundamentalists who, unable to find scripture supporting their biases and beliefs, twist phrases and modify translations to prove they are honoring the Bible's words. A section is called Playing Telephone with the Word of God. No television pe- preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical p- politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I. Neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations, of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. He ends, the Bible is a very human book. It was written, assembled, copied, and translated by people that explains the flaws, the contradictions, that explains the theological disagreements in its pages. Now, whatever you think about Eichenwald's journalistic attempt here, his his, uh, academic approach here, his scholarship, um, you can't disagree with something he says, at least I don't. He says, you know, it's really interesting. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. They don't read it. And is it because we don't trust it? I tell you, if you read this article and um, you don't have a really great response to reflect on as you try and make sense of all that he's saying, like the one I'm suggesting you look at this week. It's in your sermon notes under Digging Deeper, Daniel Wallace's response to Eichenwald's article. It's easy to go, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I do. And I wonder if he's far off when he says, high regard for the Bible, but we really don't read it. And I wonder actually if that could be said of us. Do we, do we have a gap between maybe our quick answer, yeah, I trust the Bible. I believe there's a God. I believe it's possible that God could communicate with us. It seems to be the beginning of the story that he's a talking God and he enters into history with us for a relationship he communicates. And I believe he sent his son to be the ultimate communication. We can know things about God in creation. We can know things about God in revelation and through the special revelation of son. Yeah, I believe that God talks and I believe I can trust the Bible. And, and then it raises the question, but do I actually do that? Does what I believe about the Bible have any impact in my life today? Like this week with the challenges that you face, is there, is there traction? Or fundamentally, are we saying something theoretically, but practically there's a big gulf? So I, I want us to talk about it. And this week's message, I, I'm just going to be honest, if you're a skeptic here, there's, there's going to be benefit here. 
But I'm speaking to people who right away would say, yeah, I trust it, but I do have some questions or I trust it. But, you know, I've got some friends in my life that got some big questions. I'm really not sure how to work that out with them or or where you go, you know, maybe I don't in, in a sense of practically because I'm not really in it. I don't really know it. And I don't know how it comes to bear in the places of my life. So for those of you who are skeptics, I want to just say this is a good place. There are a lot of people who started coming to this place, and that's exactly where they were. They would say, I'm an agnostic, so I'm an atheist. I got a lot of questions. I got doubts. One of the great places that I'd invite you to consider joining up on January 26th is this kicks off again is exploring Christianity. We used to call it Alpha. Gather for a meal, interaction, questions about some of these very things. You just bring your questions, your concerns, even your skepticism to that venue, and it's all good as we work it out. So what I thought we would do this time, because six years ago, I preached a sermon, Is the Bible Reliable? I was thinking of the skeptic. And I talked about the historical accuracy of the Bible. I talked about all the manuscript evidence that would have everything to do with his bad translations of bad translations of bad translations of copies and copies. Look, there is no other book of antiquity, of history, that has more manuscript evidence. I get into all that. We're not going there today. I talk about the internal consistency of this book written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years in three languages on all these different continents and how it all beautifully holds together. I'm not going to talk about that. It's cultural relevancy. We'll talk about that a little bit. You can go to that sermon and hopefully it'll be up online this week. Is the Bible Reliable? October of 08. But what I'd like to do today is do something really different. Since we've been hanging out with Luke in his gospel, I thought let's use Luke in his second volume, Acts, to work on the question. How does Luke work the question out? Can I trust the Bible? Does he trust the Bible? Does he give us any reason why we should trust the Bible? What does he say about Jesus and specifically about Jesus trusting the Bible? How does Jesus view his Bible? So that's our tack. So grab your Bible. We'll get into Luke chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, and bring Luke's introduction to bear right from the get-go. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So let me just say, if you're here and you don't own a Bible, there's a bunch of Bibles on the back of the table. There's some more Bibles back at one of the desks. And just ask for one. It's yours, okay? I'd love for you to have it. Here's how he opens his gospel, Luke. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now keep your eyes on the text. I want to... want to point out three things that he's saying to young Theophilus to help him understand why he can have confidence in the things he's been taught. The first thing he says is, what I'm writing to you is in line with the other gospel accounts that are in circulation today. Many have set out to write an account. I'm not giving you one that says, hey, all that is a bunch of bunk. This is the latest and greatest. Don't think. He's saying, I'm in continuity with that. Judge what you're reading from me in light of the broader story that is being spread about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, 
his resurrection. Second, he says, understand that what I'm writing to you is not only in line with the other accounts that are out there of Christ, but it's in line with the Old Testament. Verse one, that little word fulfilled, really important word. The accounts talk about Jesus' life and what was fulfilled through his life. And when it says that, it's recognizing that what Jesus did in his life was connected to the Old Testament scriptures' predictions about this coming Messiah. What I'm writing to you is not only in keeping with what's circulating today about Jesus, but what goes back through the ages of Old Testament scriptures. It's in line with it. And the third thing he says, it's in line with the eyewitnesses. He doesn't claim to be one of the eyewitnesses. But one of the beautiful things we have of Luke and Matthew's gospel and Mark and John's is they were written really closely to the period when Jesus lived and ministered and died and rose again. We believe that Luke's gospel goes back to the early 60s, less than 30 years from the time of Christ's ministry here. And so he says, you can know, Theophilus, that there are actually people who are alive today that were around back then, and they'll substantiate if what I'm saying is real or not. You can go talk to Mary Magdalene. You can go talk to one of the 12. You can talk to Cleopas. You can talk to Rufus. You can talk to these people. So Luke gives them his understanding of what he's doing here, his claims, he gives his sources. Then he goes and he says a little bit about his methodology, right? He didn't just collect them, but he carefully investigated everything. And that's one of the things we notice about Luke, his careful attention to detail. Not surprising, Paul refers to him as a doctor in Colossians 4.14. So it kind of is right up his alley, careful, detailed. We like that of our surgeons, of our docs, right? It's a good thing. Look in chapter 3, verse 1, to see some of the attention to detail as he sets up the ministry of John the Baptist. This doesn't read like myth, like story, like fairy tale. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, the brother Philip, tetrarch of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I count up to 15 historical details in just two verses. Go to Acts chapter 27 and look at the unbelievable description of the storm and the shipwreck. It's called one of the greatest records of maritime life and history in the first century and he gives all the details of what's going on as they're trying to survive that horrific storm so he gives his methodology careful investigation writing an accurate account and then he makes clear his purpose and here's why he's writing it theophilus i know you got questions i know you're asking can i trust what i've heard about jesus And he says, I'm writing this so that you can be certain of the things that you've been taught about Christ, that they are true, that you can know that they're true, that you can have confidence, that you can trust what you've heard about Christ and that what he did wasn't just for the Jews, but for you, a Gentile, Theophilus, it's all good. And so what Theophilus needed and what we need today as we wrestle with, hey, I'm not sure if I can trust the Bible is this, not just an orderly account, but an orderly account of the one that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to, the one that Jesus says, 
I'm the one who's come, the hope of the world. He needed to know all about Jesus. His life, his ministry, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection. And so Luke keeps the focus on just that. In fact, he gives up the summary sentence, in a sense, the cliff notes of his gospel in his introduction to Acts. Check this out. He says in Acts 1, this is where we see that it's a two-volume kind of a book. In my former book, Theophilus, same guy from Luke 1, I wrote about, here's his subject, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, until his ascension, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So, Luke's saying, you can trust this. Why, Theophilus? Because I'm not, this isn't like a random one-off crazy thing that doesn't have any continuity with the stories that are going on from the eyewitnesses. And it's in keeping with what the story has been saying and predicting from the very beginning, from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. So then what Luke does is he shines the spotlight on Jesus is he helps us understand not only who he presents Jesus to be as the son of God, but who Jesus claims to be the son of God. And then what is the son of God's take on the Bible? Okay, so that's where we're going. So that's Luke's take on himself, on his gospel. What's Luke's take on Jesus? And from the outset, he's making it clear from the very announcement of Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel to Mary, that he's not just going to be an ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill little Jewish boy. He is going to be the promised Savior, the Son of God. So look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35 He mentioned it a few times in this section, but down at verse 35, he says this after Mary says, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How can I have a child? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High of God will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called, there it is right there, what? The Son of God, the Son of God. From the very beginning, all the way through his gospel, the Son of God. That's what the angels declared to the shepherds, Son of God. That's what Simeon said when he held baby Jesus on day eight in the temple. That's what Anna, the prophetess, declared. That's what the voice said at Jesus' baptism when John the Baptist baptized him in chapter three. The heavens opened up, a voice is heard, the spirit like a dove descends on Christ, letting John the Baptist know, that's the one I said you should be waiting for. That's the one, the promised savior. And the voice says, this is my, not prophet, not servant. This is my son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what the miracles are all pointing to, that Jesus is not just any other person. And yet when you think about the miracles of Christ, whether it is casting out a demon, healing a disease, even raising the dead, actually there are prophets in the Old Testament who did that. In fact, there are magicians in Egypt, we read, in Exodus, that did all kinds of wild miracles. But nobody did the ultimate, and that was be raised from the dead. And those miracles are pointing to his deity. And for some of us, miracles, that's just like, that's what I'm struggling with. I've never really seen a miracle. They don't really fit into my worldview. So we're not sure what to do with miracles. So can I just digress philosophically? And I promise, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm not going to lose you. I'm a pretty simple guy. So here's the simple philosophical um, 
thought that we need to hold together. Nobody yet has ever disproved the existence of God. Nobody has ever made a tight case. There's no arguments against it. Here, I can prove to you that God doesn't exist. Therefore, the possibility of God's existence is there. You have to start with that. You may not hold to that, but the possibility has to exist until you can disprove his existence in every nook and cranny of this universe. All right. And if he does exist, and if that is a possibility, then the possibility of this God acting supernaturally has to be there. Ergo, miracles are possible. So from the angels to the demons, from Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, to Cleopas, one of these guys walking out of Jerusalem, all sad and dejected. We'll catch up with him in a minute. The voice from heaven saying, this is my son, has all these echoes in Luke's gospel. He is the son of God. He is the son of God. More importantly, not only did the disciples think he was the son of God, not only did the demons call him the son of God, but you've got Jesus claiming to be the son of God. So in Luke chapter four, he has his first sermon. Remember in Nazareth when they tried to run him out of town because they're so mad? Not about his message, but about his mission to the Gentiles. They're ready to push him off the cliff. Remember what he does? He, he opens up Isaiah 61, which is a prophetic scripture about this coming Savior, the one on whom the Spirit of God would rest. And he says, as he sits down today in your hearing, I fulfill that. I'm him. In chapter 5, remember the story of the friends who have a, have a buddy who's paralyzed and they dig through the roof and they lower him down. And before he heals him, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are going crazy, going, hey, you can't say that. Nobody can forgive sins, but who? God. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He says, so that you know that the Son of Man, his own title of himself, what he called himself, so that you know the Son of Man, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins. He looks at the dude and he says, get up, walk. Jesus claims to be God. He he says that his mission and his life is going to be all about the, the mission of this coming Messiah. At the trial, at the end of the gospel, it's the crux, his claim to be God, in which they go, we've got everything we need now to charge him with blasphemy and get rid of this guy once and for all. So look at it in Luke 22 up on the screen at daybreak. The council of the elders of the people, that's the Sanhedrin, the council of 70, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. Here's this bogus trial. Here's what they say. If you are the Messiah, if you are this promised coming Savior, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man, his own self-description of himself, it's a, a title of this coming Messiah out of Daniel. He'll be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked him, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Enough. He's blasphemed. He's claiming God. So if you're in that actually intellectual spot where you go, I think he's just a good guy. I don't think, I don't think he ever thought, it. He, he, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. That's what got him impaled on a Roman cross. 
So you got questions about your faith, questions about the Bible. I think Luke's giving us a really, really good tutorial. Keep your eyes on the written, on the, on the living word, on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep the focus on Christ. It's easy to lose our way in a lot of places. Keep your focus on Christ. And what we understand is this one who claimed to be the son of God has a really clear answer to our questions. Can I trust the Bible? And it's a resounding, yes. I've based my life. I'm willing to sacrifice my life on this word. So let me chase you through Jesus on the Bible. He trusted the Bible when he faced temptation, right? Three temptations. Each time tempted, he responds with scripture from, of all books, Deuteronomy. Wow. He used the scripture to define and guide his ministry. He made it clear that his life, ministry, death, and resurrection all fulfilled what was promised. He said, it all holds together in me. So look what he says to the two dejected disciples, Cleopas and his buddy, walking out of Jerusalem. It's Easter morning. They just heard that the body's missing and they're as down as down can be. They meet up with Jesus. He's, he's supernaturally kept them from recognizing him and they're just going on and on. Are you like the only guy that doesn't know what just happened this weekend? They killed Jesus of Nazareth. Our hopes were that he was the coming Messiah, the promised king. And Jesus says this to them. Luke 24, 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets is a way of saying from Genesis in our Old Testament to Malachi. He talked to them about all of the scriptures and all through it and how it had everything to do with him. The scripture is saying there's a, there's a king that's coming. I'm the one. I want you to see that. In verse 44, he goes on and he said, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets and the Psalms all the Old Testament categories and, and scriptures in the books there. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Jesus is saying, you can trust the scriptures. They're all about me. They all hold together. And you should know that I'm trusting the scriptures because I'm going about my life doing everything it's calling me to do. Fulfilling the scriptures was everything from Jesus. So in chapter 18, Right before his death, he's trying to help his disciples get ready for what's going to happen. And he says to the 12, as he pulled them aside, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written, referring to Old Testament scriptures by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. I know I said we we're going to just look at Luke, but can I just get you to one really important verse in Matthew? So here's what he says about his place in the Old Testament scriptures. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's just a good way of summing up Genesis to Malik. Don't think I've come to abolish that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And when I think about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection fulfilling Old Testament scripture, man, it bolsters my confidence in the word of God. Just take the crucifixion. Let me point out nine predicted facts. They're really specific facts. Some of them go back a thousand years. When you see a reference in the Psalms, that's like a thousand years. Isaiah, eighth century. That's like a long, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked this earth. And what do we read in the Old Testament? That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11. That his hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, that he'd be crucified with a particular group of people, thieves, that his garments would be gambled over. What a random thought, Psalm 22. Bones not broken, his side pierced, darkness over the land, buried in a rich man's tomb, his resurrection. And the scholars say, as you look at all the Old Testament prophecies, there's probably over 330 of them. They're all fulfilled in the New Testament. That's a powerful, powerful fact to consider. Someone says, hey, I'm glad you brought up the crucifixion because it reminds me of some of the things that I struggle with. And one gospel will say one thing and another. And what is it? And so I feel like there's a bunch of contradictions. Okay, maybe discrepancies, maybe apparent contradictions, but I don't know what to do with it. So take the crucifixion. Remember that Pilate had a plaque nailed up to kind of lay out what were the charges. So look at the slide. Matthew said, the plaque said, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Mark said, the king of the Jews. Luke, this is the king of the Jews. John, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. See, it's all these contradictions. Now, wait a minute. It's not a contradiction right now. There's some challenges here, maybe a discrepancy. It's not a contradiction. Let me tell you what a contradictory uh, sign would sound like. This is Simon of of Syria, servant of the king. That's, That's a contradiction. And if you actually think about that very likely the sign read, this is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, the New Testament writer is not concerned about quoting it verbatim. Well, that's kind of an easy one. There's some harder ones, though. So what do you do with those? Like one of the hard ones in Luke is right at the very beginning, in this time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and everybody's going away, he called for a census and people are going, there's nothing in history that says he did this. And so we're all up and going, what's going on here? What do we do with those things? One of the references I lead you to that's so helpful is Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Chapter 7 talks about the Bible. It's all about this section here. I think he gives some helpful things for us to consider as we get to these things where we go, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. How does that work? And by the way, that happens to your pastor too. I don't know. How does that work? I have that all figured out. He says this. Some helpful things, and I've added a couple. Slow down. Try out different perspectives. Don't already figure out it's flawed and broken and there's no way of working through this. Just slow down and look at different perspectives. One of them may be this. Is it saying what I think it's saying? So there's like this wild verse in Paul's writing to to the Ephesians. Slaves, obey your masters. Like what? Is the Bible condoning slavery? Because right away we hear slaves, we think of slavery, we think of the history of America. And it's all bad, isn't it? It's like really evil. 
And we go, oh, that's what it, he's talking about. You, you should just stay in that and obey your masters and allow that oppression and uh, indignity to continue. No, that, that's not what slavery was in the first. You could indenture yourself. You could have more social status as a slave than people could free. So it's a completely, it's a little apples, not a little, it's apples and oranges. It may not be saying what we think it's saying. Slow down. One of the great things as a Christ followers, we have the spirit. And one of the roles of the spirit is to use the word of God to guide us and to help us understand the word of God. So we pray. We, we bring humility. And we need to have a lot more humility in our day because it's really easy to say, we know so much more than the people 100 years ago. We know so much more than the people 1,000 years ago. We have evolved to such a higher enlightened state and we, we have these narrow conclusions and understandings and they're as narrow as the things that offend us in the Bible that we say are so narrow and we're just as narrow. But we give ourselves a pass because we've arrived. We ought to be careful of that. We also ought to be careful of being disingenuine about something that often happens relative to the Bible. So let me just just say as a pastor, one of the things I've noticed is when we know what the Bible says and we willfully are saying, but I'm not going to do that. Maybe it's in one area, maybe it's in several areas. There's dissonance that happens where we go, this is what God's word says, I'm supposed to be living according to God's word. I'm not. You might even feel something before the conscience gets seared. You've got, you've got to do something with the dissonance. And so you're either going to change your behavior to line up with the word, or you're actually going to change your attitudes about the word so that you give yourself some leeway, a break. And I think it's important for us just to be honest and say, is, is there a chance that the reason I'm really struggling with the Bible is because I really don't want to trust it in a lot of areas, submit my life to it and be authoritative as we talk about in our second value. The Bible's authority centering our lives on God's truth. Something to consider. Another really important thing. Remember the difference between a major issue and a minor issue. Some of us are coming to the Bible and we're going, man, I, I, you know, I just got to know what it says about homosexuality. I need to know what it says about sexuality because this is like really important. It isn't a really important issue. The Bible actually does say something about sexuality, our sexuality, as it does about a lot of things. But we need to understand the difference about a major issue, and that has to do with, like, Jesus Christ. Who is he? What did he do? Did he rise from the dead? And a minor issue gender roles or what it says about money or other things. And so here's what I would say to you. As you find yourself like really preoccupied by what I would call and others would call, that's kind of a minor thing in the scope and the landscape of the Bible. Don't worry about that right now. Because if Jesus isn't who he said he is and didn't do what he said he did, then you don't have to worry about what the Bible says. It doesn't have any bearing on your life. You don't have to give it any credence and consideration. Know the difference. And then one of the things I really like about Keller's book is he, he asks us to be credible in our investigation and to doubt our doubts as much as we doubt that which we doubt. Doubt our doubts. Be skeptical of our skepticism. I think that's honest. I think that's helpful. Can I trust the Bible? Luke says, yes, you can. It's in line with the other gospel accounts. It's in line with Old Testament 
storyline. It's in line with the eyewitnesses. You can trust it. Theophilus, that's why I wrote it. To increase your confidence in Christ, the one whom the word is all about. Jesus, can, can we trust the Bible? He says, yeah. I staked my life on it. I submitted to every detail of it. You can trust the Bible. And so I just pray that we, we move from that first question, can I trust it? And then get to, I think maybe a more important question for a lot of us. Do I? Do I actually do that then? So what are the complex things in your life? What are the complex things in this world today? Are are we going to the Bible? Are are we submitting our lives to 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 the truth and the grace in the word of God? Or does that have no bearing? What is it in your home right now? What is it at work, at school, in your marriage, in your finances, as you struggle with depression or an addiction, with your hopes or your fears, where you need to trust, to take God at his word? I'm excited. I'm excited this week in your life groups to to share with each other what's happened when you've taken God at his word. I was just thinking recently of a friend who told me, I remember a couple summers ago, you challenged us from Malachi 3 to to tithe, to set aside 10%, and I've done it, and it's just radically changed my life and our finances. That's an exciting story to hear someone talking about. And so I applied this truth, this command about loving my wife as Christ loved the church, and it's revolutionized our marriage. I'm excited for us to hear that it is a living word, that it is a powerful dynamic that changes things. But one of the things that we could be in danger of is turning the Bible into some kind of manual for living. And we treat it simply as an instructional manual. And so I I remember when we were first married, I cracked our first car. I mean, I put my head through the windshield. Lori didn't see me in the car, thought she was like a widow, uh, you know, a few months into our marriage. We needed to get a new car. So... That's the good part of the story. So we get this cool, they don't even make it anymore, a Honda Civic Wagon five-speed. Are you kidding me? Metallic green, had the great tan interior. I can still smell it. And I love just reading through the manual. I love reading through the car manual. Bob, you like manuals, right? We just like reading through those things. How does this car work? And so here's the deal. If you think about it, there's like a really big difference between reading the manual and driving the car. And by the way, if you don't drive the car, you don't need the manual. (laughs) And you know what? I feel like a bunch of us, we're just reading the manual and we're not having the experience of the ride. And the ride is a relationship every day with the living word that is brought this world into existence, John says in chapter one. When God speaks in creation, it's the power of Christ who brings everything out of nothing. This living word that came, not as a messenger, God loves you, as as the living embodiment of God's love, the word of God who sacrifices love for us so that we could have a relationship. He came to reconcile us 
into the relationship we were created for. And it's an invitation. It's not just instruction. And it's, it's a danger of us to get cerebral about the Bible and miss. This is the word that came to bring us in, in the relationship, the relationship you were created for, the relationship that transcends all relationships, the relationship that helps you understand who you are and why we're here and where it's going and how to be the woman, the man that God's called you to be in all the relationships. And just don't let it be a manual that's sitting in some glove box. Christ invites us through his word to have life with the one who is life and gives life. So I was reading Knowing God, this is like a classic, J.I. Packer. And he gets to this very thing. In fact, it was Packer who just kind of lit the aha bulb for me. So I'll end with this quote. Therefore, God sends his word to us in the character of both information and invitation. It comes to woo us as well as to instruct us. It's not merely, it not merely puts us in the picture of what God has done, history, and is doing, but also calls us into personal communion with the loving Lord himself. May this be a year where we go, I can trust it. By the grace of God, I am trusting it. And it's all about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen your people through your word, even as you did young Theophilus. Jesus, thank you for your submission to every minute detail of the word to remind us, as Moses wrote, it's not an idle word. It is our life. And thank you that you give us life and we would pray that we wouldn't be just preoccupied with reading the manual, but we would see your word as a love letter that invites us into relationship with you that changes all of life. I pray, dear God, that you would grace my friends here today with all that they need in the journey now to know the one that is utterly trustworthy. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.